So uh, further to that, uh, that uh, Rick's prayer about, uh, about immigration, just so you know, um, tomorrow uh, I will be um, with some other faith leaders um, at a meeting with the governor. Uh, please pray that I don't say or do anything stupid, um, which really is my main prayer whenever I'm in any situation like that. But I was reminded, and this is relevant to our, our passage today, uh, you know, the, um, the evangelicals have taken a leading role in uh, speaking up for uh, a just reform of our nation's immigration system and, uh, and uh, took quite a bit of heat uh, early on, uh, especially from uh, more conservative, uh, politically conservative folks among evangelicals. Um, and there are plenty of, uh, plenty of different perspectives on what the problem is and how we got here and what exactly needs to be done. Uh, but one thing that I think evangelicals have, have done well is to advocate for uh, a just reform of the system that we have. What's been entertaining about this for me, partly it's just been interesting for me as, you know, as a recovering political science major to watch the way that things have developed, to watch the way language has changed in some of the statements that have been made. And, uh, and, and it's also been fascinating for me uh, to watch the way that Scripture has been used in addressing this particular question. So one of the ideas that folks had early on was that uh, you would be able to appeal to people uh, from uh, uh, strong faith backgrounds, especially uh, evangelicals and traditional Catholics, by, by appealing to Scripture. And so uh, there was a lot of Scripture being thrown around by people who don't generally throw Scripture around when it comes to, uh, to political issues, and, and especially people who don't usually throw Scripture around and use it literally. Um, and so you had, for example... Uh, people citing Exodus chapter 22, verse 21. It says, Do not mistreat an alien or oppress him, for you were aliens in Egypt. And people said, See, the Bible says you have to treat aliens. Uh, and aliens there does not mean like little green men. Alien means a stranger. Um, but the problem is, a few verses before that, it says, Do not allow a sorceress to live. And it says, Anyone who has sexual relations with an animal must be put to death, and whoever sacrifices to any god other than Yahweh must be destroyed. Generally speaking, the folks who were throwing this verse about aliens around were probably not in favor of burning witches. Uh, and it, that part was kind of amusing for me because it's a great example of abusive quotation of Scripture, taking it entirely out of context in order to serve your purpose, not recognizing it in its original context. Now, you may have heard it said that the Bible is a love letter from God to you. Anybody heard that? I know BJ and Mary have heard that because a very famous person used to say that a lot in, in uh, the context of the women's Bible study at Grace. And um, not, not exactly. Uh, if it is... God's love letter to you, it's written in the form of a whole lot of letters to a whole lot of other people, some of which are not really all that loving. The Bible, as we know, is not a single book. It's a collection of books uh, of various genres. You have history, you have architecture, you have interior decorating, uh, you have really wild psychedelic prophecy, 
uh, you have a, a whole lot of finger wagging and you have a whole lot of threats and you have even a whole book that's just about sex. But uh, you get in the Bible a whole lot of different literary genres, including letters. Uh, and then you get in some books, like Jeremiah, which is a really long book, uh, you get, uh, in, in fact, uh, letters within a book that contains itself various genres. And so if you're going to understand a letter, what do you need to, under, what do you need to know in order to understand the meaning of the letter? Think about any letter. What? Who who's writing the letter? And who's, writing, and who's the recipient? And you might also want to know things about when it's being written. You might also want to know what, if the person is referring to places or ideas or, or situations, what's going on with those. Uh, if, if you don't understand the context in which the letter is being written, if you're simply taking it as a text without a context, then um, you're very likely to misunderstand it. You may get the kind of situation you have on the bulletin cover, which is a riot. Presumably, this is just an assumption because I didn't see the original, I'm assuming that picture did not actually go with the article that has a headline next to it, uh, but you just take it like that, and it's obviously this poor little puppy is, is in big trouble for doing some very nasty things. It's true. No, you have a, you have a point. Uh, so, so you, you, if, you, if you misunderstand the context, then you're going to get it wrong. Uh, another example is a, a city councilwoman uh, who was uh, indicted and pleaded no contest to, uh, to violating campaign finance laws. And then shortly after that, she was uh, invited to speak to a bunch of high school kids and give them career advice, uh, which is, shows a lot of chutzpah, I think, and... and uh, and, and, and she said to them, one of the things she said was, I think it was Shakespeare who said, to thine own self be true. And it is true that Shakespeare wrote that. Uh, that comes from uh, a, a speech given by Polonius, who's a character in Hamlet, who's a jackass, using the technical term. Um, you know, there are a lot of things that Shakespeare wrote that he put in the mouths of evil or foolish characters. And you might quote them, but if you quote them favorably, then you're making yourself out to be that same kind of character. That's what can happen if you take stuff out of context, if you don't understand exactly who's saying what, why. So if you look in chapter 30 of Jeremiah, if you just add one number to the chapter and verse, instead of Jeremiah 29.11, which is our text this morning, you get chapter 30, verse 12, and it reads, this is what Yahweh says, your wound is incurable, your injury beyond healing. Now, how many people do you see slapping that up on their Facebook pages? Yeah. But why is it that when we look at Jeremiah 29.11, which reads, this is, I know therefore I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Why is it that people will claim that verse rather than your wound is incurable, your injury beyond healing? I mean, you have every reason to read them the same way as they're both addressed by the same person to the same recipient. 
The answer, of course, is that people will claim Jeremiah 29, 11 because they like it, because it makes them feel good that God has plans to prosper them, to give them hope in a future. People don't like it so much to hear that their wound is incurable, their injury beyond healing. As it turns out, the folks who were hearing this from God needed to hear both. But uh, if you pick Jeremiah 29.11 and claim that without claiming Jeremiah 30.12 in the same way, it's kind of like reading your mail selectively, right? It's kind of like saying, you know, I'm going to take the bank statements that say I have money, and I'm not going to take the bills that say I owe somebody money. Even worse, if these are letters written to somebody else, it's like going around your street and grabbing everybody's mail and just taking as yours the checks and taking as everybody else's the bills. It would be nice if we could do that, but we don't get to do that. That's not how you deal with a letter. I mean, to give sort of some absurd illustrations of this, right at the end of Romans, right in chapter 15, we'll be getting to that this coming spring. It seems like just yesterday we started. Romans 15, 28, Paul writes to the Romans, So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this fruit, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. How many people are claiming this as a direct promise from God? That after Paul delivers fruit to somebody, he's going to drop by your house on the way to Spain. I I mean, it's the same interpretive method that gets, oh yeah, God promised me that he's going to prosper me. How many people read 2 Timothy at the end, where Paul says to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 13, When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, and my scrolls, especially the parchments. How many people make a direct application of that and find that cloak that he left with Carpus at Troas and bring him his books and his library? Of course, we don't do that, right? Because at least there, we're smart enough to know, no, you're not supposed to take this out of context and apply it to your situation as though you can just directly pop it out of one setting and put it into your own. So that raises the question, what exactly is the context of Jeremiah 29.11? What's going on here? Well, if you'll remember last week when we looked at 2 Chronicles 7.14, that was a situation where God's people were there in Jerusalem. They had just dedicated the temple Things were going very, very well. This was sort of the height of the monarchy's power. Solomon was still a wise king and not a thoroughly corrupted one. But this comes along a few hundred years later when the people have not been obedient and the kings have not been wise for quite a long time. In fact, the the nation had suffered a civil war due to oppressive taxation. They split into northern and southern kingdoms. And you have a situation where the southern kingdom now has also been sent away from the land, has been conquered, has been tossed off to Babylon. Happened to the northern kingdom where the Assyrians came and scattered them in 722. 586, the Babylonians came. They took the elite of Jerusalem society, and you'll remember this fondly from our Ezekiel series, trucked them off to Babylon and set them to work on a wetlands reclamation project, which is a polite way of saying that they were filling in a swamp about 100 miles away from downtown Babylon. They were out in the sticks 
This was not a pleasant place to be. And so what we have here in chapter 29 is the text of a letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem. Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem, and he's sending this to the surviving elders among the exiles and the priests, the prophets, all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Starting in verse 4, this is what Yahweh, the God of angel armies, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens, eat their produce. Marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there in Babylon, don't decrease. And also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to Yahweh for it, because if it prospers then you too will prosper. Yes, this is what Yahweh, the God of angel armies, the God of Israel says. Don't let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They're prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares Yahweh. Now, this is what Yahweh says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place, Jerusalem, where Jeremiah is writing from. For I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares Yahweh. I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you declares Yahweh, and I will bring you back into the place from which I carried you into exile. So this is a promise that God is giving to his people. In some ways, similar to the one in 2 Chronicles 7.14 we talked about last week, this is a promise from God to his people Israel. But it is a promise that's given to them in a particular place and time. And the fact is, unless you are a 6th century Jerusalemite exiled to Babylon, you cannot directly claim God's promise that he has plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future, because he is giving this assurance in the context of reminding his people that he's not forgotten about them, that he has plans for them, that he is going to bring them back from exile, but he's not going to do it right away. Right? He says, you're going to be there for 70 years, so, so hunker down, settle in. You, you, you can start buying green bananas, right? Um, you know, because it seems that some of the people thought, no, we're going to get sprung out of here right away. In fact, some of the false prophets had been saying exactly that. They were saying exactly what people wanted to hear. This is usually what happens with false prophets. Very few false prophets make a good living saying what people don't want to hear. And uh, Jeremiah says, no, th- this is what God says. You guys are going to be there a while. So, make the best of it. In fact, not only does he say make the best of it, I want you to be a blessing to the people among whom you're in exile. I want you to pray for the prosperity of the place where God has put you. I want you to be a positive, uh, a positive presence in the community that I've put you in. I want you to be gaining 
in wealth. I want you to be gaining in, in, uh, in numbers. I want you to be a growing, generative community. Because I am going to be bringing you back. I'd much rather bring back more of you in better shape. But I also want you to be a blessing to the people that I put you among, right? This goes all the way back to what God said to Abraham. When he called him, he said, I'm going to make your name great and you will be a blessing. In fact, I'm going to bless you so that in turn you will be able to bless all the nations of the earth. The way that God says he is going to bless the nations is through his people. So this, when God says, look, I haven't given up on you, when he says, I still have a mission for you, I have a calling on you now while you're in exile before this, the resumption of you living in the land and being my people there, this seems kind of consistent with how God works, doesn't it? And so what that means for us when we read this is that these same kinds of ideas probably could correspond to us, right? That God hasn't given up on his people, that he has a mission for us, he has a calling on us in the particular time and place where he's put us. Now, that doesn't mean, necessarily, is that the plans he has for us individually, as individual persons here, or as individual families, or as a church, or as a nation, that, that they mean that he is going to necessarily prosper us. I mean, if, if this were true, then people like Jesus and Paul and basically all the apostles who were all martyred, they really missed out. You know, if they had only claimed Jeremiah 29.11, then all that nasty stuff wouldn't have happened to them. No. That's absurd. And we can't just grab this and make it ours either. Back when I was in seminary, I taught a, a prep class for the, uh, the LSAT, this test you take to get into law school. And uh, I did this for, the, for, for Kaplan. And there was this one uh, exercise in class that really, really made everybody angry. There's this question, you know, you get a multiple choice, A, B, C, D, or E, and there's this question, and everybody sort of immediately would say, oh, B is the correct answer. And then I would go through the thinking that led them to get to B and show them that that was wrong, that the logic was faulty. And so then we would go take about 10 minutes to work through the process of actually answering the question and coming to the right answer, which actually was B. Right? And they would say, well, see, we would have been fine. No, you wouldn't have been fine. You would have been lucky. But you can't count on being lucky. You've got to do it the right way. And so in the same way, when we read Scripture, we may come to a point where we are confirmed in sort of what was our initial instinct when we read something. But we have to go through the work of understanding these texts in their context. When we're dealing with letters, we need to know who wrote it and to whom and when. Now, some texts in Scripture, we don't exactly know who wrote it. We don't exactly know when, but we can have a decent idea. Others, like this one, it's very clear who wrote it and when and what the setting was. But we have to do the honest work of understanding the word God has given to us the way he has given it to us. He hasn't necessarily given us the kind of Scripture we would prefer, 
And if you would like, you can find plenty of people who will give you the kind of scripture you would like to have. The false prophets are still out there, and they're still active, and you can, uh, they will happily take your money to tell you what you want to hear. But if we're really going to understand these verses that God has given us, and understand their meaning as they really are, then that requires us doing the good work of really understanding the text. And that's especially important for us as evangelicals, as Bible people, as people who hold to a high view of Scripture, who believe this is the word that God inspired, that he gave us, that this is authoritative for us in all manners of, of faith and of conduct, that, that this is a trustworthy word. It's, it's only trustworthy if we use it the way that it has been given us. So let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you do have an established track record of not giving up on your people, of using your people, of restoring them even after they fail you. We're grateful that you can make use of us, that you can redeem even our mistakes. And so I pray, Lord, that as we study your word, we would bear in mind what your character is, we would learn the things about you and the way you deal with your people and your word, world that you tell us about, but that we would understand them well, that we would do the honest work of interpreting your word, not to mean necessarily what we want it to mean, but to hear the message that you have given and the way you've given it. Or make us people of integrity when we deal with this word you've given us. In Christ's name, amen.